Good morning. I'm Joe Collins. Welcome to See Me Church. Our mission is to love and to live like Jesus. We've been in a series called Jesus Worth Following. The last time we we did uh, we spoke on this series, we talked about thinking before you speak. And today we're going to talk about not making excuses. So there was this popular student. He was a good student. And uh, he went through a whole year of class and at the end took the final exam and he failed the final exam. So he met with his teacher and the teacher was shocked and surprised. And he sat with him and he said, how could you have failed? I mean, you're one of the best students. I never would have seen, expected this. I never would have thought you of all people. How could you have failed the final exam? And the student said, well, listen, there's 365 days in a year. If you take away 52 Sundays and 50 days of summer and 137 days for sleep and naps and 45 days for eating and socializing, 35 days for class time, 35 days for holidays, family events, five days for personal care or hygiene, and and finally five days for being sick, I only had one day to study. And the professor said, yeah, but my class was so easy. One day would have been enough. And the student said, yeah, but that day was my birthday. It's so easy to make excuses, isn't it? Turn with me over to Mark chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 18. I've got the notes on the screen here. Let's pray before before we read. Father, thank you so very much for this time to be together. Thank you again for your spirit and the blessing it was to spend time in worship and communing with you. God, we pray now that we'll turn our attention to your word. Let it minister to us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 12, verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. So if you're new, it's Tuesday, the last week of Jesus' life. Now, prior to this, he had entered into the city of Jerusalem as a, as a king and a savior, had some conflicts at the temple. You can see our map there. They've got a, that little rectangle there is the, is the temple area, and the, there's the temple mount and the, and the court around the temple. And it was there that Jesus cleared out the temple uh, uh, merchants and money changers and called down curses on the temple system and Judaism as a religion in general, which you could imagine would cause some conflict with the religious leaders, the temple authorities. That was on Monday. The following day, Tuesday, he returns to the temple, and he's met, one after the other, by a delegation of leaders within the Jewish community. The first delegation came from the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Israelite people. And they came to him, and they confronted him and challenged him about his authority, who gave him the right to do these things. In other words, they were calling him a heretic. Then the next group that came to argue with him was a group, and it was an odd group. It was Pharisees and Herodians, two people who had almost nothing in common. In fact, they were political and religious enemies, but they came together, and they accused him of duplicity. They tried to trap him. Do you, do you, do you worship Caesar? Do you worship God? Do you, do you give honor to Caesar and pay the temple tax? Or do you withhold and give to God? And they were trying to get Jesus, trying to paint him as duplicitous. Now comes the Sadducees. It was a, it was a busy Tuesday. 
And they are accusing him of ignorance. Now, not much is known about the Sadducees. Their sect died out in the first century. What we do know is they were a small but very influential group of educated landowners. Politically, they favored an alliance with Rome because that was beneficial to them. Religiously, they were what we call Torah-onlyists. They rejected most of the, of, the, of, of the law, I guess you could say, and the prophets. So they, they adhered to what the Jews called the law, which was the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But they basically rejected all the other books, the historical books, the prophets, the Psalms, you name it. They were torah onlyists. They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the physical resurrection. I'll be here till Thursday. <laughs> and they claimed that the Torah, if you just stuck to those first five books, the law, which was called the law, that there was no evidence for resurrection in the law. On a personal note, they were the live your best life now crowd. They tended toward hedonism and materialism. Now, we're going to get into the argument that they have with Jesus, the accusation, but I want to prep you first to understand what the accusation was about. Because they're going to talk about marriage, but the truth is the accusation was not about marriage. They were actually using this conversation about marriage to disprove the resurrection. So they were really challenging Jesus on his belief in physical resurrection. Now, I want you to understand something, that Jesus believed in physical resurrection. He believed that after this life, there would come another life where we would receive new bodies, physical bodies. We wouldn't be mists floating around in the ethereum or whatever. We would be physical. It's actually central to the teaching of Christianity that there will be a point in which we will be resurrected. The body you have is like a seed and it will be die. But when it, when it comes to life again, it'll be like a plant that grows from the seed. It will be physical. It will be real. Amen. It will be here on this earth, which has also been, which is also going to be renewed. This concept of resurrection is fundamental to the ideology and to the teaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not a live-your-best-life-now peddler. He was a live-now-for-your-best-afterlife preacher. Verse 19. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. 
This is what we call in Latin a reductio ad absurdum. In other words, it is a logical fallacy. And this is what the, the Sadducees are trying to trap Jesus with. They're trying to corner him. You see, the, the idea here, and I, I need to speak to it for a second about marriage, this concept of what's called Levite marriage. It was, a, it was a, a law in the Old Testament. It was allowed for in the Old Testament, back in the days of Moses, all the way back into the Torah, into the book of Deuteronomy. It was allowed that if a woman died without any, I mean, a, a woman's husband died without any offspring, that she could marry in the family and then have offspring, and those offspring would be uh, considered the offspring of the dead husband. Now, it's very foreign to us. I get that. And it seems very weird. But let me help you understand. At that time and in that, in that era, this was a way to protect the woman's estate because inheritance passed through the man. And a woman without an heir was in risk of losing her estate. And so this was actually meant to be a protection for the widow. And by the way, it was actually optional. The widow could opt out if she chose to. In fact, the brother, if he opted out, it would go to the next one and to the next one. And there's an interesting process, an interesting ceremony that they went through if the brother opted out. Just to give you an idea that the women at the time felt great about this. I know it's different today. It seems weird to us. But to give you an idea of how they felt about it, I'm going to tell you what the ceremony was. If the man opted out, the brother who was living, the woman would come to him, take off, of, take off his shoe, and spit in his face. That's how you got out of Levite marriage. What does all that mean? I don't exactly know. And I'm not really going to get into it right now, but I just wanted to get the weirdness out of the room for a minute. Because there is weirdness in this passage. But remember, it's not about leveret marriage. That's not the debate. The debate is the reductio ad absurdum, the logical fallacy that these Sadducees are trying to trap Jesus in. It's a clever-sounding argument. Think about it. If there is a physical resurrection, then whose wife would she be? Their point was that God would not institute a law that created clarity in this life, but created confusion in the afterlife. And you could see how the Sadducees saw this as their best argument for why there's no such thing as a physical resurrection. Some people believe that this was such, such a common argument that it was almost like a soundbite from the, from the first century. It was almost like a, a, a joke that the Sadducees would tell with each other. Ha ha, those dumb Pharisees and those other people that believe in resurrection. Ha ha, listen to this joke. And they'd go, oh yeah, you're right, buddy. Oh, you're right. And they would, they would reinforce their belief that it was ludicrous. It was absurd. It was illogical to think that there's such a thing as a physical resurrection. Just like people today will take arguments that sound good on the surface and use them to mock people that they don't agree with. This is what the Sadducees were doing. I had a friend who was a member of our family of churches for many years. 
And he got caught up in a reductio ad absurdum, into a logical fallacy. It had to do with the nature of God. He came across someone who, who challenged him with the question, if God made man in his image, and we have men, then where did women come from? The argument was, if God made man in his image, then God must be male, but there also must be a female God who made woman in her image. And this was a logical fallacy that they trapped my friend in. And no matter how much I pled with him, and no matter how much I reasoned with him, and no matter how much I tried to talk to him, he couldn't get it out of his thinking. It was like inception. It got planted in there. And I couldn't, we couldn't talk him out of it. And he left the faith and embraced a whole different kind of faith. How well do you know your Bible? If you don't know it well enough to stand up against people that mock you, then you don't know it enough. We have to know what God's Word says if we're ever going to be able to navigate our way through difficult and challenging times. There's a lot of reductio ad absurdums out there. There's a lot of people that have a sound bite that sounds clever and it throws us off. We could, we could spend 10 minutes here throwing out different sound bites that we've heard just in the, in, in our culture alone that sort of makes Christianity sound off or it's missing or something wrong about it. But the truth is all of that stuff are just clever sounding arguments. And when you take the time to know God's word and know it well enough, you'll be able to see through such silly arguments. And you'll see them for what they are, mocking. Verse 24, Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of uh, Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So Jesus replies with his own accusation of ignorance against the Sadducees. They were ignorant of Scripture, and they were ignorant of the power of God. Now let's talk about the power of God first. It's actually logical to assume that a God who created this life, how he wanted to create it, is more than capable of creating the afterlife, how he wants to create it. They had a hard time understanding that God in his power could actually make some changes for the better in the next life. I was at a church conference and I was listening to this minister of a, of a large church and he had this great point. This is kind of inside church baseball, but it is what it is. But they talk about it at the end of every year, they review their mission statement, their core values, their process statements, all this kind of stuff. And it got me thinking, oh, we should do that. We should talk about that stuff every year to review it, make sure that we're adjusting it and refining it because we're the ones that created it. There's nothing wrong with trying to improve it, and make it better. Well, if we can do that, so can God. Right. 
You see, they didn't understand the limitless power God holds. He spoke the world into existence. He didn't even have to lift a finger. He just said it, and it was done. Then Jesus, in one of those rare moments, gives us a little glimpse. And I want to say a little glimpse because we're not going to create an entire theology on this little comment because it's just a glimpse. It's a peek. He kind of lifted the, he pulled the curtain back and gave us a little glimpse of what the afterlife, afterlife and what resurrection looks like. And he basically says that it's going to be familiar, but it's going to be different. I don't know about you, but that's interesting to me. I find that exciting. I actually want it to be different. There's a lot of good, and I love a lot of things, but boy, could it get better? Yeah. It could get a lot better. I don't know what that difference is going to be like. I hope it involves eating as much food as you want and never having to work out. I'm not making doctrine, but that's one of my hopes. What are some of your hopes? I'm going to ask you, just for a second, if you're bold, if you're willing, put your hand up. What do you hope the afterlife has in store? Yes. You hope there's animals. I was going to say that I get to play with wild animals. You get to play with wild, not just animals, wild animals. Like tigers. Lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. That is so weird. I had a dream about a a tiger attacking me last night. I just (laughs) literally thought of that when you mentioned that. That's so weird. Yes. Painting the landscapes. Painting the landscapes with God. A limitless chocolate fountain. A limitless chocolate fountain. That is a good one. You know, it's okay to think about the afterlife. Let's let's go another minute, please. Indulge me. Let's dream about the afterlife. Yes. Yes. More fun in the afterlife. Yes. No hate and war. No hate and war. No pain. New colors. New colors. That men cry as much as women. That's your afterlife. I don't know if I want that to be my afterlife. <laughs> yes. That we can fly and we don't have to cry. That we can fly and we don't have to cry. Yes. Tim. I want to sit around with Jesus and some of the my friends and the apostles and yeah. see Jesus some smack on, on, on some of these. Just sit around and enjoy the, the company, right? It'll be a lot of fun. Just shooting, yeah. telling stories. You ever think about, here's one I think about, and we'll close with this one, is I think about, I, I don't know, this is just me, but I would love to be able to like go, what would have happened if I had done this? And what would have happened? You know, remember those books when you were little and you could choose the, the end and you had to turn to the other page and it would tell you a new ending? I would love to know that. What if I turned right instead of left at that moment? What would have happened? What if I would have said no, you know, instead of yes? What would have been different? I don't know. But what I know is this, God is limitless. And we can't be ignorant of the fact that God can do whatever it is He chooses to do. It will be familiar, which is a good thing. But it will be 
different. One notable difference that Jesus reveals to us is that there will be no marriage. Maybe, I don't know, I'm not making doctrine here, but maybe that's because our bodies will be eternal. So they will be different. And there won't be need for marriage and childbearing in an afterlife where we live for eternity. Regarding the Scripture, Jesus goes after them further. Exodus chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. This is the passage he quotes. Do not, or references, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So dealing with their ignorance of Scripture, Jesus goes to the Torah, the law, the book of Moses, the thing that they held above all other things. And he shows them in this one text that there is evidence of resurrection to be found in the Torah. And it comes when God says, I am, not I was. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive somewhere. They're not dead and gone. God was not their God. God is their God and continues to be their God. And He continues to be the God of every believer who died throughout the history of the world. Amen. There is life after death. Amen. I love that He uses the Torah. I love that he goes right to their wheelhouse, the thing that they put their pride in, the thing that they thought they knew better than everyone else. And he shows to them that, in fact, they were ignorant. They were ignorant of the power of God. They were ignorant of the, of the Scripture that they claimed to know. And so he says, you are badly mistaken, a.k.a. you're ignorant. You know, at some point in my journey as a Christian, I came to a realization. I realized that I could not rely on what other people tell me. I cannot rely on sound bites, clever arguments. I have been trapped by them before, or mockery. And so I made a decision that I needed to know the Bible for myself. That I needed to go back to the original, which we have many different versions of. The text we have, the Bible that we read today, is as close to the original, just translated into different languages, as close to the original as possible, it's just been translated into different languages. And the more you know the Bible, and the more you go back to God's Word and understand it, and know what you believe and why you believe it, the better you are able to handle the challenges in life that come. And the confrontations in life that come. So I'm going to leave you with a challenge. I want you to do the same. 
to know your Bible. Now, there are those of us that have been around a long time, and we've read the Bible a lot, and we tend to think we already got it. I've already read all this. I know what it's about. And sometimes maybe our personal walk with God becomes more devotional. It's more about maybe praying and singing and just connecting. But we can never, ever, ever think we have it all figured out. And so in addition to all that, we need to add an honest attempt, a genuine desire to know God's word, what you believe and why you believe it. So here's my point, and I'll leave you with this. Stop making excuses. Read your Bible. Know what it says. At this time, we'll stand, and I'll close us out with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful that you are the author and